Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling, here in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Jim Gash. Jim is the director of the Global Justice Program and professor of law at Pepperdine School of Law in Malibu, California, a Christian law school. Gash is the author of an exciting uh, new book entitled Divine Collision, An African Boy, an American Lawyer, and the Remarkable Battle for Freedom. We are going to discuss Gash's work in the Ugandan justice system, an incredible story about how he helped a, a young boy find justice and how his work led to serious reforms in their justice system. Before we begin our conversation, however, I want to remind you about Light Magazine, uh, an important new resource from the ERLC. The latest issue includes thoughtful reflections on the pro-life movement, uh, particularly in light of the Planned Parenthood video releases last year, including uh, a cover story from Karen Swallow Pryor asking the question, uh, is this our pro-life moment and how pro-life activists are, are working toward developing a culture of life in the country. Other articles that, that you might find interesting are a history of the Southern Baptist Convention and the sanctity of human life, and some thoughts from pastors on how to effectively preach on the pro-life issue in your local church. To get your copy of Light Magazine, you can go to the website and click on the link. For $10, you can have a subscription delivered to you twice a year, or you can read it online for free. So I encourage you to go and get Light Magazine. But for now, let's join our conversation with Jim Gash. Well, I'm here with Jim Gash. Jim, thanks for joining us here on the Way Home Podcast. My pleasure. Good to be here. So we're here to talk about this great new book called Divine Collision, An African Boy, an American Lawyer, and the Remarkable Battle for Freedom, forward by Bob Goff, author of Love Does. Got some kind words in here from uh, Ken Starr, president of Baylor, and former dean of Pepperdine. Before we talk about this book, I, I first want to... Um, ask you, you know, how did you sort of get interested in this story? What was it that sort of uh, piqued your interest and, you know, in, in this case uh, that you took and, and in this kind of work? Yeah, well, uh, I was dean of students for seven years at the law school here at Pepperdine, and our students had started going to Uganda in 2007, uh, first with a guy named Bob Goff, the guy who has written the foreword to the book. Uh, he invited them to come with him to a judicial conference he was hosting in Uganda, and my role at the time was to encourage and support and approve their trip with him. And that soon turned into a summer internship program each year uh, that, again, I was encouraging and supporting, but was was uh, not at all eager to get involved myself. That all changed in 2009 when I heard Bob Goff's Love Does speech prior to the book at a National Christian Legal Society conference. Mm. When he was done speaking, uh, I was going to Uganda. Uh, initially, I would say against my will or against my better judgment, but felt like this is where God had been calling me, uh, and I had been ignoring or resisting the call for quite some time. And so I, I, I really created a trip with some other lawyers, and we went to Uganda in January 2010, where we met this boy, Henry, in prison. Mm. I'm sure there's a lot of cases or a lot of opportunities like this that kind of pass across the desk of a of a lawyer. Probably a lot of things you can't take, or maybe things about the case you you know that. What was it about this case that that said, yeah, this this is really important? 
Yeah, so what happened was uh, we just went there to try and work on all 21 cases of the kids who were in prison, mm-hmm. and only two of the kids spoke English. It's, it's an English-speaking country, at least uh, the official language is English, but when you go outside the capital city, not a whole lot of people speak English well, and so these are, there were two kids in there, Henry and his brother Joseph, who spoke English, and so they became our translators. Mm-hmm. And so over the course of the week as we prepared the 21 cases, I got to know him quite well and took an interest in, in his case. Really, there were two cases that, that he had been charged with. And as a result of the relationship that I formed with him, I became interested in trying to, to ensure that he got justice, that he was able to, to fulfill the purpose God had for his life rather than sitting in a juvenile prison for uh, for, for at that point, for two years, and it ended up being another few months. So that's how I got involved in his particular case was through relationship he and I developed. So how do boys like Henry get caught in this web, and how do they get falsely accused and kind of put in prison? And and uh, how does that happen in Uganda? Right, right. Well, the, the Uganda has an un, underdeveloped. Uh, criminal justice system based on years of, of uh, challenging um, political times in that mm-hmm. country. In, in 1962, they got independence from Great Britain, and then they went through a series of, of uh, dictators and uh, really warlords leading their country, including Idi Amin. And so their system of justice hasn't fully developed, which leads to Lots of mob justice. When you don't have mm-hmm. confidence in the public justice system, then the the individual citizens often take the law into their own hands. And when that happens, then the police have a very difficult time figuring out who did what. And so Henry was arrested when the when that happened. A mob killed a herdsman for theft. And there was a lot of people arrested, and he was one of them, even though the undisputed evidence showed he and his brother were in school at the time. And so what we did was finally got the case to trial to where that evidence could be presented, and the case was immediately dismissed. The underlying case against him was immediately dismissed, but that was two years post-arrest. Mm. Well, while he had been in prison, there was a boy who tried to escape the prison uh, and died in the process. Mm-hmm. And there was another murder case that was was brought as a result of that based upon some very bad decisions that the matron who was over the, the juveniles mm-hmm. was making with respect to how she was treating them. And so he got caught up in that. And that ultimately went to trial. And when that went to trial, uh, both were convicted, Henry and the matron, which prompted my second trip to Uganda and my really deep investment in his his case, his second case, including arguing his appeal before the Ugandan Court of Appeals. Mm. Uh, it, it says here that it, it was a five-year battle, and you think about it, that's five, in some ways, lost years for this, this yeah. boy's life, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it's a five-year battle from the time that he was convicted to the time he was exonerated, but it was actually a seven-year battle from the time he was arrested. Mm to the time he was exonerated, because he was in prison for two years. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what uh, the, the silver lining in this, so to speak, is that for, for, those, for many of those seven years, he was not actually in prison. He was released in May of 2010, so he'd been in prison for two years, and then the, the battle continued while mm-hmm. he was out uh, in school, moving forward with his life. The legal case continued behind the scenes. Uh, which 
pulled me into a deeper relationship with the country, which then caused me to move to Uganda and try to assist them in reforming the system that was that uh, caused him to be in in the position he was in because it was broken. And so that was the my work the last five years was trying to assist Ugandans with with fixing the system that, that led to the injustice there. And then it says here, your work led to significant overhaul of the criminal justice process for Uganda. So would you say that, you know, that the criminal justice system now is more robust, more developed than it was uh, when you first started? The Ugandans would say that. And I would say they're the ones who should get uh, the credit for seeing a problem, for recognizing that there were solutions to the problem, mm-hmm. and for having the courage to to do something about that. And it was my privilege to work alongside them uh, in encouraging them and in assisting them uh, with best practices that would allow them to move cases much more quickly through the system than, uh, than they had been doing themselves. And so, yes, there's been a huge transformation in the Ugandan criminal justice system in terms of people who are arrested moving their, their cases to, to court more quickly. We started off in the juvenile realm, which is where Henry was in, in the juvenile court system, and then we've now moved into the adult realm. And so the, the, there, there's a change that has swept the country and is actually now being looked at closely by surrounding countries in the East African region. And the Ugandans are traveling to these countries, helping them reevaluate the way they're doing things and trying to assist with uh, improvement of the public justice system in those countries. You know, th- this is a subject that really needs to get more attention. I think when when Western Christians think of how we can help developing countries, uh, we're doing, you know, I, th- I think great work in terms of uh, aid and development, even, you know, microloans and some of these really, right. really important initiatives that help people out of poverty, help people kind of get on a sustainable path to you know, to, to prosperity or just to, uh, there's so many different things. But one of the things that we don't really talk about enough, I think, is just the need for um, a kind of uh, civil justice infrastructure, for lack of a better term, right? Uh, Right. This is something that Gary Hagan from International Justice Mission has written about, but it's still something that requires a, a deeper level of investment and involvement than most people will be willing to give to, uh, to uh, developing countries, right? Right, that's exactly right. Uh, the Gary Haugen, the director or the president of, of International Justice Mission, has written a book called The Locust Effect, which chronicles how and why the biggest challenges facing the developing world are not clean water, are not microloans, are not um, roads. It's, it's freedom from violence through a public justice system that is functioning. So you can give someone water, you can give them microloans, you can give them mosquito nets, but if that can be taken away from them with impunity, with no consequences by those who are more powerful than they are, then you have not fixed their system. You've not helped them to the way, to the extent that you can. All of those things are phenomenal and very helpful. But if you don't have a functioning public justice system, then you can't truly have a flourishing of society. And so what, what we do at Pepperdine and what my involvement has been in the Ugandan uh, judiciary is to assist them 
in refining and strengthening their public justice system. And that's what IJM does as well on a much grander, wider, deeper scale than, than I am working with, you know, a single country doing, a single country for now where we're expanding our work, but um, in, in helping them fix a particular problem. But that you're exactly right. That is a critical, deep need that hasn't really been addressed in any sort of, of international level, probably because... It's really tough for governments to try to assist other governments in mm-hmm. creating governmental infrastructure. And there's much problem with, uh, with potential corruption when you're giving a lot of money mm-hmm. to a lot of people mm-hmm. um, to say, build a better system. It, it's, it's fraught with peril, but if you're there incarnationally, you're there working with them, you're there working, developing relationships with individuals and assisting them in figuring out how the public justice system in their unique culture, with their unique heritage, with their unique history, can be strengthened to develop uh, a system that serves their people better than what they have. That's when real difference can be made. And it's probably delicate work, I imagine, because like missionary work, but maybe even more so, you can't exactly import a sort of Western idea on a country with its own unique culture. So when you're doing trying to reform the justice systems in, in these countries, it's got to be very difficult to kind of think through what is the local culture and, and value system there, right? Right. And, and just like anything and everything in this life, relationships have to precede mm-hmm directives or assistance, if they don't know you and if they don't trust you, you saying, here's how we do it in the West, here's how you should do it in Africa or in the East or in the Middle East, isn't going to work. You have to develop trust. You have to give respect and trust before you can receive it. And so part of of what I have learned in this process is just how important relationships are. So I've been back to Uganda um, 17 times since 2010 and have you know, lived there for six months with my family, and have had hosted five or six delegations of high-ranking Ugandan officials here at Pepperdine to deepen those relationships, to develop the trust that says, I want what's best for you, and you know what's best for you, and what I want to do is assist you in finding the right tools to let you build a system that works for you rather than saying, here is our system, let's see if we can force it into your country. And now there are a lot of things that we do well in the United States and, and in the West, and there's a lot of things that, that they do well uh, in, in Africa and, and elsewhere, and figuring out what's the best combination of those things to serve the needs of their society is a delicate process, and they need to be the decision makers, we're the encouragers, we're the trainers, we're the equippers, but mm-hmm. they're the decision makers. It seems to me that this is a great need, if, even if you're, you're thinking of young people who want to really go and do significant work in developing countries, that one of the great needs would be for lawyers, right, that understand international law and uh, these kinds of things. Yeah, well, and, and that's one of the things that we do at Pepperdine where our students are, they really led the way. They were the first ones to go to Uganda. They were the first ones to suggest we should have some sort of internship program. So our students go for eight weeks over the summer, work for these judges, work for prosecutors, mm-hmm. uh, work from the inside out. And then I go over three or four times a year for uh, you know a few weeks at a time. And I bring with me a group of lawyers and mm-hmm. we go into these prisons. We go into... Um, 
the the hotel conference rooms and and do these seminars for them but it's it's a matter of being able to get there in person develop relationships and and assist them and and so equipping lawyers here to assist there is uh is one of the challenges as well cuz most lawyers like I was prior to going don't know what I can do or how to go about doing it and so it's a matter of first developing these relationships and then going and being strategic about assisting them with what they believe the challenges are. Now, we can help them identify, you know, what about this? Have you guys thought about doing more in this area? Or um, this area seems like there's a, a chance to be improved if you thought about these other things. What do you guys think? Mm-hmm. So all that's to say is, is ex- there, there's a huge need for lawyers but there's a, there's a huge need for people to understand what it is that the developing countries want and need rather than us going in there and saying, here's what you should do. Well, it, it really makes us appreciate as flawed and in need of reform as our own criminal justice system here is in America, just the sort of uh, infrastructure we take for granted, right? Yeah. Well, when I first arrived in Uganda, my first trip in January of 2010, we met with the, the U.S. ambassador there, and he said you are going to learn on this trip more about the United States than you're going to learn about Uganda. And he was exactly right. You learn how much you take for granted. You learn what it is that happens without anybody seeing or or noticing uh, what is happening to make the system work. And so you get there and you realize if they just had this, you know, X thing, then things would function better. But that X thing is built on A through A through W, um, other things that if you don't have, then you can't have X. Mm. And so it's just a huge realization of all the things that we take for granted when we see our functioning public justice system and when it functions not as efficiently or as effectively as we'd like, we, we are quick to say, well, we've got a broken system. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, we do have a broken system because broken people are running it. And that's mm-hmm. just kind of the, the reality of, of our broken world. But seeing a truly a uh, system that's truly in need of of so much more than ours is makes you appreciate all that mm. we really do have. Yeah, and it also connects in a way that most people don't connect: ministry of mercy, ministry of compassion, with legislation and law and politics and the right. things that we kind of get a little queasy about as as Christians. These things are vital for human flourishing. And I think uh, the work that you're doing really connects those two. Well, listen, I'm really grateful for you joining me, um, Jim Gash, and I really encourage people to get this fascinating book called Divine Collision, about this story about how you were uh, sort of a a comfortable lawyer in Los Angeles, you're teaching at a a law school, and how you were really pulled by God into this story of of Henry, and really get for help to help people get an education of what uh, what criminal justice looks like in some of these countries. So really encourage people to get this and to read more about this. We'll have a link on our website. And also, it, it sounds like there's a documentary coming out in 2016 as well. That's right. Yeah, there, there was a, a, a Nashville-based production company mm-hmm. called Revolution Pictures who mm-hmm. followed us during two summer trips, uh, 2014 and mm-hmm. 2015, and kind of captured the work that uh, Pepper Nine is doing in Uganda and captured the story that is told in Divine Collision to, to some degree, kind of Henry's story of, of where he was and where he is now. And, and there's, a, there's a very happy ending at the end of both the book and uh, the film that uh, hopefully the readers will be interested enough to, to see what it is. 
That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today in the Way Home Podcast. My pleasure. It's been great. I want to thank my friend Jim Gash for that great conversation. I really encourage you to get his book, Divine Collision, and help think through working for justice in developing countries. If you enjoyed this podcast, uh, would you let us know by sending an email to wayhome at erlc.com or writing review on iTunes. That helps us spread the word uh, about the podcast. If you want to get uh, other episodes, other interviews, you can go to my website at danieldarling.com. Also remember, the winter issue of Light Magazine is available. and can be purchased at erlc.com slash light. But for now, thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. The Way Home is recorded and produced by Gary Lancaster. Research is conducted by David Clausen, and scheduling is handled by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Thank you.